Good morning again. My name is Tony, and I am the lead pastor here at Gateway. Uh, I am so glad you're here. Welcome again to join us on this day. I want to say a shout out to all those online. We miss you. Uh, We understand, and uh, we hope that you are enjoying the service via online there in your living rooms, in your pajamas, drinking your coffee, eating your donut, or whatever it is that you're doing, right? And uh, we're glad that you're on there with us this morning. So today I'm starting a a three-week series. Today is week one of a three-week series called Jumping In. Um, I know now we were supposed to do this series in August, to start August, uh, but because of COVID we pushed it back a little bit. Um, But yeah, doesn't that look fun? Anybody ever do that? Yeah, okay, a few, a few folks. So um, today's this series on jumping in. So about a year and a half now, about a little over a year, uh, the leadership of our church and groups of leaders of our church have met, we've prayed, uh, we have really sought God in the direction that we should go as a church. What is the next step? What is the next phase? What is your vision, Lord? And we asked ourselves that. What is God's vision for us? What is that picture that when God thinks of Gateway, when God thinks of the people of this church, this is what he sees? And we prayed and met and we even brought in a vision consultant who met with us and helped us go through some things and some exercises. You've heard me talk about some of this. Um, we sought God's direction as to the kind of church that he was calling us to be. And that's important. Not every church is the same. Not every church has the same vision, although every church has the same mission. Jesus' mission for the church is to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. That is every church's mission. But not every church fulfills that the same way. And so we wanted to know what was God's unique DNA for us? What is God's unique fingerprint for us? And it was hard. I'm just going to be honest with you. It was hard work. I mean, we would meet and then we would meet outside of the meetings and we'd meet once a month and then we'd meet a couple times between and we had to go through these exercises and dig in and it was hard. Thank you, Nancy. (laughs) Nancy had a really hard time with this process, but it was good though, right, Nancy? Now, Nancy, you probably shouldn't have said that because here's my next thing I'm going to say about that. It wasn't hard because there was a lot of work to do. It was hard because it challenged our ideas. It challenged our belief in what we saw church to be or do. Most of us think of church as something we do. You want to know what we discovered in that process? We came to this realization that meaningful discipleship happens best in authentic community. Let me say that again. Real, meaningful discipleship, truly growing in your faith, 
growing in your love for one another, truly growing in your love for God, it's going to happen best when it, you are in a meaningful, authentic community of people who are doing life with you together. Church has to be more than attendance. Church has to be more than just coming to church on Sunday morning. It has to be more than just Sunday school or Bible studies or programs. All of those things are good, and those are places that the community gather. But we realize church must become something so much deeper and more meaningful than just attendance. It has to become something more than just something we do, but it has to become something that we are. It's not about doing, but it's about being in the kingdom. Remember what Jesus said? They will know that you are my church. They will know that you are my disciples. You remember this? Because someday you're going to build beautiful buildings and put giant crosses on them. And the world will see that you are a church. And there's people today who will argue and fight and leave the church because we don't have enough crosses around here. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus didn't say... They will know that you're my disciples because they're going to they're gonna put on such an awesome and incredible... And let me tell you something. I'll come all day long and listen to that. That singing. And sing those songs. And be in the same room with you guys. I love that. I love the emotion. I love the energy. I love the environment. I love the spirit speaking to my heart as we sing these songs. But Jesus didn't say they'll know that you're my disciples because of your great Sunday programs or your awesome kids program or your incredible teen program. Jesus did not say that. Here's what Jesus says. They will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. How are we doing on that, church? I saw a tweet this week from a person that I respect, a biblical scholar, one of my professors at my seminary. He said, I'm a Christian because it's true. Because he studied it and he found it to be true. But if I was to have to come to Jesus now in my life based upon the love for one another that the church has, he says, I don't think I'd be interested. So it became clear to the leadership and the vision team that we should not be simply trying to grow a church with programs and events and, a, and a, what we call an attractional model. We'll build it and they'll come. It'll be better and bigger and greater than anything else in town. No, it won't because people will come and they'll get tired of that and then they'll move to the next great thing that comes. We win people to what we win them with. And so our vision team decided that we should not be trying to grow a church, but instead we should be about growing people. 
relationships. We should be connecting with one another. We shouldn't be just having more events and more programs and more Bible studies and classes and all this. All that's great, and we'll do all that, but that's a means to the end. You say, what do you mean by that? It's just simply something we do, but if it's not drawing me closer to one another and closer to Jesus, then I'm looking at it all wrong. Here's what we found to be core to our vision as a church. Discipleship best happens in a smaller group of Jesus followers doing life together, loving one another more deeply. And we also discovered, and we were honest, and this was the hard part, right, Nancy? We're not doing very well at that. It's hard with the busyness of people today to get them together. It's hard with all the other curricular, extracurricular activities, with kids going 10 different ways. Well, if you're the Copelands, you got kids going 10 different ways. But kids going different ways, or the Mittmans, you know, kids going 10 different ways. But You know, it's hard to get people to just do life together because everyone has their own life and it's busy. Discipleship best happens in a smaller group of Jesus followers doing life together, loving one another more deeply. What we do here on Sunday mornings is so important. It's critical. As a matter of fact, our strategy for discipleship is to show up, jump in, and live out. Those three things. Those are three things we ask of people. Show up to worship on Sunday morning. Gather with the people of God to do nothing but praise God and sing His praises. But then you got to jump in to life with someone else. you got to jump into a smaller group. you got to jump in and be a part And then through that, you live out your faith in the workplace, in the school. The church needs to leave the building, is what I'm trying to say. And I think God's using COVID to make that happen. I really do. Some people think that this is a terrible thing and how could God allow this to happen. I think God's shaking things up. And I told you a few weeks ago, after COVID and what I've gone through with that as a pastor and all those different things, I am more convinced that the work we did a year ago in the vision team is real and vibrant and it's exactly what God wants. For us to leave the building and to us begin to do life together. Why? Because we are better together. We are. You want to know why? And this is my sermon. You're like, what? Aren't you done yet? Why do I need a smaller group of people to do life together? It's a good question. And this is why. Because we drift. We drift. Let's be honest. Even the most mature, even the most convicted and the most committed Christian will drift. We drift. It's human nature to drift away from all things that are good for us. It's human nature to drift away from the holy and the wholesome of life. If it is good for us, we drift from it. 
Don't believe me? How's your diet going from your New Year's resolution? You were convicted and you committed, right? I won't say you. I was convicted and I committed to that diet. And about two weeks in, I drifted into a cheat day. And then one cheat day became two. And then two cheat days became three. You see the cycle here. We drift, man. Come on. Come on. You all know it. You, you, you're guilty of it too, right? Maybe not your diet, but what about your exercise? You stay out of this, Joe. Uh, how about your exercise program, right? Not like Joe who runs 50 miles a day every day, you know. But there's something dr- Joe drifts from. You know how I know that? Because we all drift. How about your budget? Remember how convicted you were and you were going to sit down and you spent hours putting it all together and you had this budget and then you made this commitment to it and you're like, I'm convicted, I'm committed. And then a month later, there was that dress that you wanted to buy or that new fishing rod you needed, right? And you drifted. And to the point where you're not doing a budget at all. But we do it with God too. We have an emotional, spiritual experience and we get convicted and then we become committed. And then that commitment, you know what I'm talking about. You have this mountain high experience and it's like, it's always going to be like this. And then next thing you know, a month later, you've drifted to, you're not reading your Bible, you're not praying, you're not feeling, what's going on, God? Because there's a drift, a natural drift away from that that is good for us but here's the beauty of it we're all in this together there is this natural pull this drift that i'm talking about into complacency and apathy and here's the thing that just really bugs me is that commitment is not enough and conviction is not enough you've been told that you just need to be convicted and you need to have more commitment. Just commit more. Just, I need more commitment out of you, church. I just need you to commit more. The problem with commitment is I can get convict you and make you committed for a period of time, but then you're going to drift. You're just going to lose that passion that you had. People are like, I never lose my passion. Well, they're lying. They're just lying. I'm always on the mountaintop. Well, not even Jesus was on the mountaintop. He had to go to the cross. He had to suffer and he had to die. If conviction and commitment were enough, we'd all be a little skinnier. We'd all be a little richer. We'd all have a little less baggage. We'd all have fewer regrets and we'd all have no secrets to tell, right? The truth is, we're all swimming upstream, church. We're all swimming upstream in a culture that will do everything it can to pull us away from that which we need the most. Our text today shows us this truth. 
since all of us are swimming upstream, the only way to not get lost in the current, you get this? This Hebrew writer saw this happening in the Hebrew church. I'm going to be in Hebrews chapter 3 today. If you have your Bibles, you can open there. I'll have it up on the screen for you. But it was written to a group of Jewish Christians. You say, how do you know they were Jewish? Because of the way the book was written. Thus, it's called Hebrews. They, he wrote to, and some people think the Apostle Paul wrote it. We don't know because it doesn't say. It kind of sounds like Paul, but then there's other parts that don't sound like Paul. But the Hebrew writer, we just call him the Hebrew writer, saw something happening in the Hebrew church, the Jewish church, that bothered him. People were drifting away from the faith. And his whole message, and I'm going to get to that here, but really I'm going to boil it down. His whole message was, we all drift, it happens. The best thing to do is not swim upstream through the current alone, but to do it with someone else to help you when you're weak. Now the current church that the Hebrew writer was writing to we think that they were a second generation of Christians. The first Hebrew church, the Jewish church, was persecuted in 64 AD by Nero. Some of the worst persecution. It was a persecution that created the dispersion. Remember, they all dispersed. The church ran for their life. And then there was a second major persecution in the life of the church that happened about 85 AD by a Roman by the name of Domitian, some of the worst. He was worse than Nero, some say. We think that Paul, or whoever wrote this book, was writing to a group of second-generation Christians in between these two persecutions. Why is that important? Because if you read, and I've got a text here in Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God, the first-generation Christians, to the second generation. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Well, what was the outcome of their life? They stood firm in the persecution and were actually martyred for it. Hebrews 12. In your, look what he says. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What's he saying? Hey, Hebrew church, I know it's tough. I know it's hard. I know you're going through COVID-19. I know that everyone's fighting. I know no one can make up their mind who they want to be present. I know your world is rocked and you can't go to church and everything's different. Listen, I know that. But look, there's people who came before you who gave up their life and never, never faded away from the gospel. And here you are wanting to give up. And you haven't struggled against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of martyrdom. So the Hebrew writer just opens up. And chapter 3 is where we're at. Chapter 3, verse 12. He says, listen, see to it. And that's the title of my my message. See to it. Brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Turn away. Who would do that? I would. I have. Who would turn away 
from the living God. Why would someone do that? Who here has ever turned away? No, don't raise your hand. I won't do that. It's a rhetorical question, but it's a real question. I guess if the circumstances were just right, perhaps someone invited you to church and you came and you gave your heart to Jesus and you really thought this is great and then you realize what it's all about and you're like, whoa, I didn't realize what I signed up for. Is this what, I, is this what it's all about? And I get that. I've been there. More than likely, it's probably not what it's all about, but someone's told you it's what it's all about. And you're like, I don't know if I want to do that, or I can't do that, I can't give that up, I can't do this. And so you just fade away. You turn your back. Perhaps it just got too hard, the peer pressure. Perhaps it was cramping your style. Perhaps God didn't do something for you that you thought he might, and you said, well, if God's like that, I don't want to have anything to do with him. And you turn your back. Why do people turn away from the living God? And the answer is really in the verse. And it's important for us to see this, that this is a community, what I call a community imperative. He's not speaking to an individual. Notice the plurals. Brothers and sisters. He says, none of you. You is a plural. In the original language, it's a plural pronoun. He should have said, well, we all would have said, Y'all. That's what he meant. See to it that none of y'all has a sinful, unbelieving heart. Why? Because a sinful, unbelieving heart will turn away from the living God. The writer is saying, you all need to be seeing to it. See to it. See to what? You might say. You all need to be seeing to each other. You need to be seeing about one another. Why? Because there's this natural drift that we fight against at different times in our life. A current. The pressures, the stress, the trials, the troubles of life. Look at where the drift begins, though. It begins in the heart. The heart, sin, and doubt is the cause of the drift. The drift begins in the heart. Doubt takes root, pressure roots, pressure mounts, apathy sets in, temptations come, and we give in. You know, the heart is a deep and mysterious thing. Biblically speaking, the heart is your being. It's who you are. It's your spirit, your soul. It's your spirit, your mind, your flesh. It's all of that combined into what we call the soul of a person. It's how you make your decisions. It's how you choose. It's how you think. It's how you act. It's how you behave. It's the secrets that you keep. It's your soul. And the heart or the soul is a mysterious and complex thing. The drift begins there. Out of the heart, Jesus said, comes good and evil. Hmm. It's who we are. Out of our heart is also the secret place that we go. 
where we close others off, refuse to share, refuse to confess, refuse to confide. It's the heart and the soul of people that I worry about these days. You can't hate one another and not affect your soul. And that's what Jesus is getting at. He says, I want to save your soul. I want to heal your soul. And I can do, I'm the one that can do it. Nobody knows unless somebody is seeing to you. Nobody may know. Where does this type of thing happen that the Hebrew writer is talking about? Seeing to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. Where does that happen? Do we just let anyone come up to us and just say, Hey, sinner. Hey, unbelieving heart. Where does that happen? Where's the safe place? Where is someone seeing to me? Where do you intentionally put yourself so that somebody can see about you? It's not happening here. I'm just going to be honest with you. I love Sunday mornings. And I love church. One pastor put it this way, rows are great, but circles are better. We need to gather. We need to row up. We need to worship the Lord. But... Your heart cannot be seen to in an environment like this. You say, well, that doesn't make sense, Pastor. What do you, give me more. What are you talking about? You can hide here. You can be present, but not known. You can raise your hands and sing to the top of your voice. You can say amen, but no one knows the struggle that you're having. The pressure that you're under. The rejection that you felt. The doubts that are welling up in your heart. The temptations that you just can't seem to overcome. And the secrets that you're ashamed to tell. What happens to all of that junk? I love the song. Jesus offers to come and wash our souls clean. Where does that happen? Not in here. Because nobody's seeing to it. The author used a word for turn away that I found interesting. He uses a verb tense on the word. When I turn away, it's, I kind of think this. I'm headed this way, and then I just kind of turn, and now I'm going the other direction, right? The verb tense on this word to turn away actually implies that this is not something that just happens all at once. But that there are ten, a hundred, a thousand, whatever, little bitty turns. I was going toward God. Things were great. But for some reason, I gave in to a temptation. I didn't tell anybody about it. I made a sin. I, I did this. And so I slowly start He gives this imply that these are small steps away from God. That turning away from God doesn't happen overnight, but that it happens over time. That is why we need each other. 
That is why we need community. We don't blow our lives up in one day, but we blow our lives up over a period of time, and it just happens to happen on one day. Next verse. He goes, but, and I love it when when they do it, you know, see to it, brothers and sisters, that those who have an unbelieving and a sinful heart, that they do not turn away from God. But, it means, okay, see to this, but encourage one another. That word encourage is interesting. You know, when, when I think of encourage, I think attaboy, right? Hey, I need you to encourage someone. Okay, I'm going to walk up, pat them on the back. You're doing great, man. Come on, you're doing well. That's right. Just keep going, right? Isn't that what you think encourage means? Way to go. Good luck. Hang in there, man. I'm there for you, blah, blah, blah. That's not what this word means. This word is an imperative. When he says encourage, it means this. Appeal to them. Urge them. Exhort them. Strongly urge them. Beg them. Implore them. Entrust them. Who's doing that over your life? Who's doing that over your life? Remember, you will drift. You will be tempted. You will slowly turn away from God. Who in your life is appealing to you, exhorting you, encouraging you, begging you to stay true to the faith. He says, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. Verse 13 continues, so that, you know what that means, right? So when you're reading along your Bible, it says, but encourage one another. Why do I need to encourage others? So that. Here's the purpose of it. So that is a purpose statement. So that. So that what, Hebrews writer? None of you may be hardened by sins. Say it with me. Ooh, sin's deceitful. It tricks us. The purpose, the Hebrew writer is saying, You should be seeing to one another, encouraging one another, because sin will trick you down the wrong path. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand the heart? Deceitfulness. We turn away because we believe all the lies that we tell ourselves. You deserve that. Or maybe they deserve that. <laughs> Seems like a lot of that going on right now. Well, serves them right. That's a lie. I deserve that. Or how about she practically forced me? It's not hurting anyone, right? If it doesn't hurt anyone, it's okay. I can stop when I want. I got this under control. Or what he doesn't know won't hurt him. You see the lies that we tell ourselves. Well, he's been mean to me all these years. I I deserve this. Well, that's not the right way to look at it. And if you don't have someone in your life encouraging you, and telling you how stupid that is, and ignorant that is, and foolish that is. 
You're going to believe those lies and you're going to make life-changing decisions based off of the lies that you're believing. That's hard, right? We all have done it. Come on, folks. You don't even have to be a Christian today. And, and if you're here and you're not a believer, that's awesome because a lot of this stuff is just, yeah, that makes sense. A sinful, unbelieving heart turns away from God because we grow hard by sins. To sim- the assumption that the writer has, this is what I pick up out of this verse. The assumption that the writer has is that the church must be a community of people, Jesus followers, who have Jesus at their heart and center, full of mercy, full of love, full of grace, who are loving one another so much that they're seeing to each other. That they are exhorting, appealing to, urging one another, maybe even begging people to remain faithful to the cause, to remain faithful to their faith. This author is assuming that a connection exists amongst a Jesus-following people where this kind of relationship is welcomed and reciprocated. It's returned. The church, the Jesus community, must be an environment that is safe for this to happen. Otherwise, we will all drift And we may not even drift into sin as much as we might even drift into bad thinking about the gospel and about Jesus and about loving one another. Has anyone had a Christian make you feel badly because they don't think how you think politically? You can raise your hand. Yeah. They've drifted away from what the gospel is about. You see what I'm saying? The drift doesn't even have to be some terrible sin that we think is above reproach, you know, that you just can't overcome. We drift. The Hebrew writer sees the drift and says that the whole community needs to see to it. To see to all of us. Here's something that is true that I find true in my life. We is the best defense against me. We is the best defense against me. You can deceive you, but not the folks who are seeing to you. The frontline defense against self-deception of sin is encouragement from spiritual friends It is easy for you and me to be deceived by our own selves, by our own hearts. But but if there are people who know me, if there are people who know my blind spots, if there are people who know my weaknesses, my temptations, my failures, my regrets, if there are people who know what is going on in my life on a weekly basis, I cannot hide and deceive them. Sin is put to death. Listen to this. Sin is put to death in our lives as we confess it to one another. Where sin grows and thrives in our hearts is when we hide it and bury it to produce more sin fruit. 
sin is put to death, when there are spiritual people in our lives full of grace and mercy that we confess our hearts to, sin then is put to death and people are seeing to us. We all need close spiritual friends who can tell us how foolish we sound, how utterly stupid that would be, and how irrational our thinking can get at times. What are you telling yourself these days? Listen to me, church. What are you telling yourself these days that you, if you told others, they would think you're out of your mind? They might think that you're crazy. We all, listen, let me go on to the next verse. I'll finish this up real quick. We have come to share in Christ. I love the word share. He says, we have come to Share. What does sharing imply? Community? Connectedness? Togetherness? We share in Christ if indeed we hold firmly till the end of our original conviction. And there's that word conviction. Let me summarize. I'm going to give you the whole, ver- the whole passage and then we'll wrap it up. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold firmly to the end of our original conviction. In summary, he says this, See to one another as often as possible because... We are easily tricked by sin, and sin causes us to drift away from the faith that has changed our lives for the better up to this point. We need each other. You ever watch a friend make a stupid purchasing decision? Have you ever been that friend? Oh, come on. You know you have. We've all, I've done stupid with zeros behind it, all right? We've all done some really stupid things with money, right? <clears throat> Ever had a friend or a family member announce his or her engagement? And they say with that engagement, it's, it's, a hev- it's heaven sin. It's ma- a match made in heaven. And not one of the family or friends thinks that's true. Come on. You got to see two people, right? I mean, I'm not afraid to say it, but yeah. Have you ever had a son or daughter bring a date home and the daughter or son was convinced that this is the one and you're like, "Uh uh-uh. You know what I'm saying? I got three daughters. Come on. Feel my pain. Um, Anyway, ever seen a married friend drift away from a spouse and start to talk about their spouse in ways that are just like, that ain't right. Anybody ever seen that? Or been on the other end of that? It truly is amazing how you and I can have this clear insight into stupidity in other people, and yet we can't see it in ourselves. It truly is amazing. Did you know that there are godly people in this room that love you, that want the best for you, that would love to have an open door? into your life. Not to judge you, 
but to just be your friend. There are people in our lives all around us that if we will simply share in Christ with them, they have this insight into our life that could make our life better. The way to avoid deceitfulness and sin, to avoid the drift, is to open our lives to others. To invite them in for a closer relationship, a deeper friendship, to benefit from their clear thinking. People see what I cannot, and that's just truth. People see what I cannot. Now, that doesn't mean you open your life to anyone, because there's people who would love to see all kinds of things about you that just aren't true. So I'm going to step out on a limb, and I'm going to make this big assumption. It's an educated guess, but being Western and American, this is probably true of maybe all of us here. I think the statement fits us. The independent, autonomous philosophy of our Western culture. The American idea lives deep in all of us. And you say, what are you talking about? We all may be guilty of adopting this notion that our life's decisions, listen to me, the choices I make, the decisions I make on a daily basis are nobody's business. Now we're getting into the good stuff. I think that sometimes. I've said that. That's nobody's business. You want to know the truth? I mean, that's fine. If you think like that, we have this freedom to think like that. And, but I just want you to be real about this and, and be honest about it. Y'all know that your decisions do affect other people, right? I mean, that's a really selfish way to look at life. And we do it, Americans, and it's nobody's business. I'm American. I'm free. I can do whatever I want to do. Yes, you can but not without affecting someone else. And if you truly love one another, you'll take into consideration the choices you make and the decisions that you make and the things that you do and the things that you don't do because your choices in life affect the people around you. If you care and love your family and friends and the people around you, you will take this seriously. Because your choices... Don't just affect you. That's what community is about. That's what society is about. If you love them and you care for them, you need more than just commitment. You need more than just connection. You need community, a place of meaningful relationship that exists so that people can look and see into your life and help you do life better. You need an environment where you are engaged, urged, and exhorted to remain faithful. Our worship leaders are going to come. We're going to do communion here in a moment. But in a couple of weeks, next week and the week after, you're going to hear more about life groups. Our vision team came to the realization We must not be a church that meets on Sunday morning that does life groups. But we must become a church of life groups that meet on Sunday morning. Does that make sense? 
Does that make any sense? That we must become this discipling community. We're smaller groups of community. So I sat down one day and I just wrote kind of this idea. What is a life group? What do I, what's the vision for a life group? It's this. I think a, a life group needs to be 6 to 12 people. I mean, if 12 was enough for Jesus, it's probably enough for us, all right? I'm just kidding about that. But Jesus must be at the center of that group. They are there to worship Jesus and to do life together. There must be some sort of Bible study, some sort of discussion, prayer. They must be on mission together. You say, what do you mean on mission together? It would be awesome to have all these groups who really care about their community. And as a group, they go out into their community and they do things for the community together. That they do life together. That their friendships aren't just superficial, but that they go deeper and they can actually talk about stuff in their group so that we can be seen to one another. That they multiply. That they invite their friends who are far from God, who may otherwise not come to a Sunday morning church service, but they'll come to your house for your famous pie or tacos. I have a group. We've been meeting on every other Sunday. We come to my house and I cook everybody dinner. No, that's not true. That would be a lie. See, Jared, you need to be seeing to me. You need to say, lie, right there. It's okay, I give you permission. Um, but we have a group of about four couples, and they come, and at, right after service, we go right up there, and last week was one of the best groups we've ever had. We sat around the table, we ate dinner, we talked about the sermon, we discussed the sermon, we dug into some ideas about discipling, about reaching our friends for, how do I reach my brother, my, my friends for Christ who are far from God? And we had this great discussion, and then sometimes one week we play games, and I won them, I won them all. Thank you. You know, and we are, we are growing as a community, a small community. And I want to see this multiply all over our church. You don't have to meet every week. People are busy. You're all busy, right? I mean, you got like 20 kids. You know, I mean, you're busy people. You got jobs. Your kids are going this way. And we said, let's just do it right after church every other week. Next week, we're talking about going out to Pokagon. You can do this. We need leaders. We need people to jump in, to be a part of this, and realize that life is going to happen. We're not going to hold people to attendance. That's not how we're going to decide how you're being discipled. Are you at church? Are you giving? Are you reading your Bible? You know, we're going to put a chart up on the wall, and everybody's name gets on it. How many chapters of the Bible did you read this week? And if you didn't get your goal, man, come on, you're not being a good disciple. That's not discipleship. You all understand that, right? That is not discipleship. Discipleship is reading, is living out your life with someone else around Jesus and the cross. Discipleship is about that. And then you bring the Bible into that and it teaches all kinds of good things, right? And we discuss those things and we talk about those. That's what we're going for. You're going to be hearing more about that. You may even get some emails or some Facebook stuff and if you're interested and you want to be a part of that and you want to lead that, we've got some other groups. We've got a couple other groups that are p- popping up and starting to get formed and starting to go. And uh, we're making plans for this. It's going to be, it needs to become the center of who we are. Let's do life together, church. Amen. I'm going to keep you a little bit longer today. They're going to sing one song and then we'll get through communion. But uh, I know I went a little long today, but 
Y'all forgive me? Now, if y'all want to just, I'll give you permission. To, no, I'm not, because I'll get letters and people will be like, I'm leaving the church because you spoke 50 minutes and all that stuff. I'm not going to do that, but let's stand. And let's sing this song, and we're going to prepare our hearts for communion today. Communion is one of the greatest things we can do as a community as we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us to make this great community on faith possible. Amen?